Well, good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this has been a long week. It's been a draining and a difficult and a discouraging week. And to be honest, uh, this has been a week where it's been very challenging for me to have joy. So what I've decided to do this week is I'm actually going to, before jumping back into 1 Samuel, we're going to take one more week to consider something significant because it's something that I need to hear today. And hopefully it will be something that proves to be a blessing and encouragement to all of you as well. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the word this morning. Father God, as we come before you, we bow our hearts to you. And just as we sang moments ago, Lord, we, we acknowledge that you are Lord and that you are alive. And so, Lord, we pray that we would indeed at this time turn our eyes not just to a book, not just to the, the written word on the page, but to you, that by looking at the word you have spoken, we would see you clearly. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would be an encouragement to us, that you would uplift us, strengthen us, support us, and grow us into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen. Back when I was in the fourth grade, uh, there was a movie that was released that captured my imagination, but also it became a cultural phenomenon that marched its way to the highest grossing animated feature of all time. It still lands squarely in the top 20 movies of all time in terms of highest box office. It was so popular that it was even turned into a Broadway play. Yes, a children's cartoon turned into a Broadway play, something that had never happened before. Now, I loved that movie so much that the first date that I ever went on with my now wife, was to go see the Broadway rendition. Now, of course, I'm speaking of The Lion King. As a child, my favorite part of the movie is when the protagonist, the lion cub, Simba, runs away from his kingdom and he befriends two lazy, indolent nincompoops named Timon and Pumbaa. And together, these three friends spent the ensuing years camping in the wilderness and eating bugs that were animated in such a way that can only be described as Slimy, yet satisfying. <laughs> to a fourth grade boy, that life appeared glorious. And I grew up in a church, and when you grow up in a church, sometimes you have a visual that gets into your head. You start thinking of things in the Scripture in a particular way. Well, for me, when I was growing up and studying the Word, I perceived the disciples to be just like Timon and Pumbaa. They were these carefree individuals who left all responsibility behind, and they went to just go on a long camping trip with their friend. That, however, is a very faulty notion. So exactly what did the disciples do? What was their job description? What did Jesus expect of them when he said, hey, you, come follow me? Well, the disciples actually performed many duties for Jesus, they were, on an, they were a very integral part of his ongoing ministry, and as they would travel, we see that Jesus would often send them ahead to go prepare things for when he and the rest would arrive. When Jesus multiplied the food and he fed the 5,000, first he told the disciples, you feed them, and when they couldn't, of course, he multiplied the food, and then they served as unconventional wait staff to go disperse the food to all of those who were there, and then to go back around to all the 5,000 men and perhaps up to 25,000 total people, and they collect all of the leftovers, like busboys. 
And when it was necessary to travel across the water, some of the disciples utilized their skills that they had learned from a life of being a fisherman, and then they served Jesus in his needs by travel. And Judas Iscariot, we know, was responsible for holding and presumably even budgeting their funds. We know that people donated money to support the ministry of Jesus, but we don't know logistically what any of the inside of that stuff looked like. It's very possible that the disciples were responsible for working out all of the details concerning donations and food and lodging. We can learn about the disciples and what they did on occasion by how they address Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, the disciples gather around Jesus and they say, Master! Now this reminds us that the disciples did not just view themselves as you might view one of your friends. They viewed themselves as servants for Jesus. We also see the disciples refer to Jesus as rabbi, which indicates that they were taking very seriously an education from Jesus that they viewed to be their professor or their teacher. Students of a rabbi would seek to spend as much time around their teacher as possible. The modern university system is quite different than the way things operated back then. In those days, you would just find somebody you believed what they said, and you would follow them around and begin to think like they thought, act like they acted, walk like they walked, dress like they dressed, and even you tried to copy their tone of speech and their manner of facial expressions. And they took this very seriously. Jesus often taught the disciples, he often instructed the disciples, but he also occasionally sent the disciples. They were functional missionaries. He would take them two by two, at least on two occasions. He sent them to go throughout all the lands of Israel and to inform all the regions and cities and towns about exactly what Jesus had been teaching concerning the kingdom of heaven. And we also know that at least some of the disciples viewed themselves as Jesus' bodyguards. For example... People want to bring the little children to him, and, he, and they stop the parents. Who do you think you are bringing these kids to Jesus? Of course, Jesus was unhappy with that. And again, later, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter takes it upon himself to pull out a sword in a failed tactical move and haphazardly cut the ear off of a man named Malchus, aiming at his head. He was just a bad aim. And as you know, Jesus then condemns Peter's violence, and he takes that ear, and he heals it back onto the head of Malchus, even as Malchus was attempting to arrest him. But Peter was willing to fight, albeit poorly, as a bodyguard for Jesus. The disciples viewed Jesus' life and his message and his kingdom as paramount, to the point that they verbalized that they were willing to die for him. We see this conversation take place at the Last Supper, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he said, one of you will betray me, and they all begin to defend themselves, saying, not me, I would die with you. I think it's fair to say that Jesus would have utilized the giftings of each of these disciples to serve him most effectively, from chauffeurs to accountants, from waiters to messengers. These men, these men they, they wore a lot of hats. This was no life of hakuna matata. This was exhausting. This was work. So why would these young men work so hard to follow after Jesus? Well, there are many things that we could say to answer that question, but perhaps the best thing to do is just let them answer for themselves. You see, in John chapter 6, Jesus preached a sermon that was not well received by the crowds. That was perhaps the most famous he had ever been. Maybe he ever was with the crowds. He had just fed the 5,000. They had walked all the way around the lake to get back to him after he went across in a boat. And it says that they attempted to make him king by force. And then Jesus says some very unpopular thing, things, and it says that everyone left him. 
Only the 12 remained. So Jesus turned to them, and in verses 67 and 68, he says, do you want to go as well? And their response, Simon Peter answered, of course, the mouthpiece of all of the disciples. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So they followed and they served him because Jesus taught truth, and he did so with authority that was unlike anything that anyone has ever heard before or since. It's like even the crowds could say, this man teaches not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but with one, as one with authority. Consider also the words of the two disciples who were walking along the road to Emmaus following the death and resurrection of Jesus. When speaking about Jesus, they said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. In other words, they anticipated that Jesus was going to be the one who would wrestle authority away from the Romans and that he would reign as king of the Jews, just like David and Solomon. Also, consider the words of Peter on the road to Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, 16, Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why were they following Jesus around? Because they believed that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. They didn't understand all of the details, but the Hebrew meaning and understanding of the Messiah was that he would be the king and that he would reign forever and that this rule would have no end. And this is a promise that we see sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. And to some extent, they understood it and understood that he was the fulfillment of it. And beyond that, they understood that he's not only a earthly Messiah, but he truly is the Son of God. That is why they followed him. We see the disciples don't understand when Jesus, just weeks before the crucifixion, finds them arguing about which of the disciples is going to be able to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. The disciples probably think that everything is falling into place perfectly. Look, everything's working together. Finally, things are about to happen. We're going towards Jerusalem. Everyone's starting to listen. We are getting a groundswell of support. Then everything looks great when they enter into the city on Palm Sunday and Jesus is welcomed by an exuberant host of everyday people who have gone out of their way to lay down their own coats on the ground so that Jesus' donkey can walk on their laundry. And they are claiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you read John 12, 21, they say something else too. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Surely the disciples thought that this is the time of the kingly reign of Jesus. This is when he's going to come in and he's going to set up a throne. And over the next four days, everything's going to shift. Jesus would preach strong words, words against the Pharisees primarily, driving them to a point of rage. And on Thursday night, Jesus had his final meals, meal with his disciples. And so it's been a shocking turnaround. It's been a confusing week as the disciples have watched the crowds go from being an exuberant host of delighted onlookers who were supporting the ministry of Christ to now being at least cautious in their rejection of Jesus because of the religious elites. And so they enter the upper room and it's full of confusion. The disciples are shocked when Jesus then gets down and washes their feet, and the disciples are surely disturbed and defensive when he tells them that one of you will betray me, and then they are surely bewildered and concerned when Jesus that night is arrested, and they are distraught when Jesus is condemned to death, and they are most definitely crushed when Jesus is actually crucified. That's not their plan. This is not what they expected. We thought that he would be the one who would restore 
Israel. We thought he would be the one to rule and reign as king. We thought. When I was 12 years old, uh, Brock Barber wrecked his bike into my grandmother's ditch while I was playing basketball. (laughs) Uh, From that point forward, he and I became very good friends. And I, I think more than anyone in my childhood, at that point, our lives were on a very similar trajectory. We were on parallel paths. We were both interested in lifelong ministry, and I wanted to be a missionary in Brazil. Brock was actually the first person who got me there. He connected with me with a ministry, and he went with me to Brazil that first time. I did end up moving there, and I served there for a while before the Lord brought me out. But if you flash forward a little later, 2009, Brock and I were both getting ready to propose to our girlfriends. I knew his girlfriend really well, and He knew about my girlfriend, Ashley, but had never met. So I called him, and I asked him right after I proposed uh, to ask him if he would be the best man at my wedding, but he never answered. So I tried a few more times a few days later, and same result. A few days later, his girlfriend, Nicole, called me and told told me that he had fallen into a coma due to an extensive and aggressive malignant tumor in his brain. The doctors had to operate, and basically took most of his brain with it. So I went back to Kansas to visit him, and I just wasn't ready for what I saw. He had lost over 100 pounds since I had seen him. He was just a shell of himself. He was on a feeding tube. I don't think he even recognized me. I had a plan. (laughs) When I walked into the room, I had a plan. I had scriptures earmarked, I was going to read with him, things I was going to say to him, stories I was going to remind him of, and I couldn't even do it. When I left that room, I knew I wasn't ever going to see him again in this life. A few months later, on Thanksgiving morning, just after 3 a.m., I received a call that he died. Death changes everything. If you've experienced that in your life, you know death changes everything. I had plans. I had planned for Brock to be in my wedding. (laughs) Nicole had plans to marry him, have a family. But death changes everything. Now, I tell you this story for a reason. Because most of you know that. You know that death changes everything. You know that unexpected death is painful for those who remain. But I tell you this for a very important reason. And that's that there's something I left out when I spoke to you about the disciples. You see, it wasn't just a job for them when they were with Jesus. These men... These 11 men, they knew Jesus as a friend, and they loved him. Now Jesus is dead. And now they're in the upper room, gathered once again, where they were when Jesus had that last supper with them that night when they were so confused and where they were arguing and where they were sad and they were frustrated. And now they're just overwhelmed in their mourning that their friend, the one who had shown them such perfect love, that man... He's dead. Their pain is now compounded by the guilt that when Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. 
They didn't stand around him and support him, but they were like sheep without a shepherd, scattered and afraid. And their sorrow was multiplied as they asked themselves, how did we not know what Judas was doing? How is it possible that he was with us all this time and we didn't know what he was doing? Maybe if I just paid more attention, this would never have happened. And Peter's sadness is complicated by the devastating reality that he had denied Jesus three times. And John, his mourning is deepened by the fact that he's literally the man that was standing there before the cross watching his friend die. Some of these men are wondering, what do I do now? Probably all of them, but at least some of them are looking around thinking, I've got nothing to go back to. Matthew can't go back to his tax collecting job. That's been replaced by someone else, and that job is never going to be afforded to him again. And even if he wanted it, he couldn't in good conscience take it. What do I do now? The life that these men had led is gone. The emotions are complicated further by the fact that everybody in the room is concerned that the Jewish religious rulers are probably still searching for them in order to finish them off in the same way that they killed their friend and leader, Jesus. So when we start reading in our text today, I want you to feel that. I want you to feel what's happening in this room. I want you to know that this was a, a room filled as a melting pot of bitter emotions. They are dejected. They are confused. They are angry. They are sorrowful. They are mourning. They are distraught. They are bitter. They are afraid. So from John 20, I want to ask and answer one question today, and I'm going to do that in a few different ways. How did these 11 men go from being all of these things to a life of joy? How did these disciples go from cowering in a locked upper room to boldly proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus until it cost them their lives? How did these 11 men go from huddling together in terrified confusion to spreading the gospel everywhere from Ethiopia to India? Please follow along as I read, starting in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, just a side note, whenever in John's gospel it says the one whom Jesus loved, it's always speaking of John himself, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. <laughs> Typical. Impetuous Peter. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, cloth where Jesus' head uh, that which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, just a quick note on this closing word, homes. Their homes are in Galilee. This is probably better rendered as dwelling place, which would have been the upper room. Now, there are two very significant things that I want you to see from this portion of the text, and then we'll move on and consider some more of the passage. 
but it helps us to understand how these men went from mourning to lifelong joy. First, the empty tomb. The empty tomb has always been one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection. There's no body. (laughs) There's nothing in there. Nobody has ever been able to produce it because it's not there. The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. They claimed that the disciples stole the body, but usually if someone steals a body, whether grave robbers or disciples on a mission, you don't usually find the clothes and then fold them up and leave them there afterwards. And even if you do, you're probably not going to take the time to separate it like a laundry closet, like a a closet in your home where you've got some of the clothes over here and the headcloth in a different place. Your goal would have been to get in and out as quick as possible. Also notice that the tomb is a well-known place. The soldiers know exactly where it is. They know how to get there. The ladies who went in to anoint the body, they knew where to go. And when Peter and John heard that the tomb was empty, they ran right to it. Anyone could have checked. Is he there? The body was gone. At this point, the text informs us that John, seeing the empty tomb, believes. At this point, he believes. Now, we're not sure of how thorough his understanding was at this time, but it's likely that John was remembering at least some of the words of Jesus, like the ones we read in Luke 9.22, when Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Maybe when John went in and he saw that it was empty, that's when he believed the words that Jesus had said. But Luke informs us that when leaving the tomb, Peter was not yet convinced. Luke 24, 12 says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself, what happened? He has not yet believed. And that probably caused some dissension, maybe even heated discussion, when they got back to that upper room. The second thing that I want you to see here before moving past this portion of the text is what it says about the Scripture. In verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must be raised from the dead. Now, the Old Testament preaches many times that the Messiah must suffer and he must rise. These young men, they had gone through a Jewish religious education. They knew the Old Testament. They just didn't comprehend it. Just a couple of examples, Psalm 16:10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's a messianic prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 53:10 says that after his death and after his soul would be made an offering of sin, after the Lord crushes him, that is when he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. He will not stay in the grave. The Old Testament proclaims it. The scripture has now been fulfilled, and now you and I can see that the whole Bible has been pointing to the events of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now one disciple from the twelve believes, John believes, but what about the rest of them? Please turn your attention back to the text, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, 
but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He just says her name. (laughs) And then she recognizes him. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Notice two things from this portion of the text. First, notice the unexpected reveal. (laughs) Why is... Why is Mary weeping when she comes in contact with these two angels? Well, this is interesting to me that this is one of the only times that in the entire Bible someone comes into contact with an angel and they don't respond with immense fear. She is so wrapped up in her mourning, in her sorrow, that these angels don't even phase her. (laughs) Why? Because she still believes Jesus is dead. And if he's dead, nothing else matters. Death changes everything. The only comfort that she expected to find was in caring for his dead body. She can't even do that because she can't find it. Just tell me where it is. If you moved it, tell me where it is, and I'll take it. I'll take it. But now this woman, this Mary, becomes the first person in history to see the resurrected Jesus. And this is much different than seeing an empty tomb. She saw Jesus She saw the king alive. Now, notice the second thing, that now there's an eyewitness. Jesus gave Mary instructions. He says, go go back and tell the disciples. But he doesn't call them disciples. He says, go back and tell my brothers. The message is simple. I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Jesus has given the disciples a firsthand account from an eyewitness this is the answer. You don't have to debate it anymore. You don't have to question anymore. You don't have to be mourning or fearful anymore. And as we shall see, the disciples, they're not convinced. In this time, a woman's word was not highly regarded. Women could not give testimony in court. They typically weren't educated and they were treated like it. And as you will notice, it seems like the disciples all but dismiss her until they have more proof. They probably just assumed that she was being hyper-emotional or irrational. So even the eyewitness doesn't produce belief. Please follow along, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now from this text, you cannot tell how they responded to Mary's message. You don't know how they received her. But let's take a look once more at Luke 24, this time verses 37 to 38, and see how the disciples respond when Jesus enters the room. There it says, They were startled and they were frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. 
Now, being startled makes sense. They're in a room. It's locked. The doors are all sealed. They are probably barricaded because they do not want the Jews to come in and find them and take them away and crucify them. So it makes sense that they would be startled. But it says they thought he was a ghost. (laughs) Do you know what that means? It means they still think he's dead. Because if you look at a person and you think that they are a ghost, you do not think they are alive. They are still not believing that Jesus is actually a living, breathing, corporeal, human, incarnate being. They are more ready to believe that Jesus is a disembodied spirit than to believe that he actually rose from the dead. Verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Once again, I want you to notice a few things. First, I want you to notice peace. Resurrection changes everything. The disciples who have been in turmoil are told not once but twice that they now have peace. Jesus pops into the room and he brings with him what is missing. Peace, peace, shalom, be with you. What changed? Here's what changed. Jesus was dead, and now Jesus is alive. Nothing else changed. They were still wanted men. They still had the doors locked. They were still in danger. They still had no way to go back to their old lives. The only difference, the only change, is that Jesus is alive. Now, notice that it said, now the disciples were glad. (laughs) Perhaps that's an understatement. Some days my soul doesn't feel at peace, and some days I don't feel glad. When that happens, I need exactly what the disciples needed. They needed to realize this is not some twin. This is not some body double. Jesus bears the wounds of his suffering. The scars remain. What brings peace and what brings gladness and what brings joy is the fact that Jesus is alive. The last thing that we're going to consider from this portion is the commissioning. The resurrection changes everything. How did these men go from cowardice to confidence? How did they change from huddling in fear to proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the point of even their own deaths? Well, Jesus simply tells them, just as the Father sent me, now I am sending you. In verse 22, Jesus foreshadows the imminent arrival of the Holy Spirit by breathing on them and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. And he sends them, and by extension, he sends us to go forth and to take the news of the resurrection to the farthest reaches of the planet, crossing every barrier of land and language to tell people Jesus is alive. But still, not all of the disciples are on board. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand onto his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Consider unbelief. It seems that Thomas enters into the scene just a little late. Perhaps he missed just by minutes the first arrival of Jesus. Thomas is absolutely unwilling to go along with the story that the disciples are telling. He is a man of logic. He's a man of reason. He's a man who needs proof. And just listen to the way that he says it. This is not the tone of somebody who passively or lightly disagrees. This is the tone of somebody who is argumentatively opposed. Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. I bet that came after a lot of discussion. That was probably not the first thing he said. But he is strongly opposed deeply in disbelief. Thomas often gets a really bad rap because of this. But notice that Thomas, he's just like everybody else in this chapter. At the outset, everybody believes Jesus is dead. Doubt defines every last one of them. They are all skeptics, but seeing is believing for them. For John, it was seeing the tomb. Perhaps some of them believe the testimony of Mary. We don't know. But then they saw him firsthand. Thomas, who probably thinks all of his friends have lost their mind or had some mass hallucination or had secretly devised a plan to lie, declared, unless I see and touch and feel and put my fingers in the holes where the skin was pierced, I will never believe. And then nothing happens. Nothing happens for eight days. That must have been a really, really uncomfortable eight days for Thomas, where he stands in a room as the one man who disagrees in unbelief with all of the others. And then Jesus appears again. He shows Thomas something very important. He tells Thomas, just take your finger, put it right here. Feel the wounds. You want to feel it? Put your hand in my side. Do you see what this means? Jesus was there eight days earlier. And he knew exactly what Thomas had said. Even when Thomas was declaring, if I don't touch him, I will never believe, though he could not see Jesus in the room, Jesus was present and Jesus heard every last word that he said. But Jesus doesn't immediately reveal himself to Thomas. Thomas continued in unbelief that entire week while Jesus delayed revealing himself. Thomas was probably spending that entire time trying to convince his friends that they had all gone crazy. But Jesus, in his perfect timing, came back into the room and revealed himself to Thomas as well. And Jesus simply told him, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas responds to the resurrection the same way that each and every one of us should. He looked at Jesus and he simply said, My Lord and my God. Now, I don't know about you, But this has been a hard week. Weeks like this are weeks that I need to hear words like these. I need to hear the words that Jesus said. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And it's only when I acknowledge my risen Lord that my heart can rejoice and declare, my Lord and my God. Now, of course, Jesus knew that everyone in this chapter doubted until they saw him. Yet Jesus promised a blessing for those who do not see and yet believe. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other things, other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was very likely that in a room with this many folks, that there are some in the room that are not yet followers of Christ, that are not disciples, that are not born from above, that are not believers, that are not saved. To you, I want you to know that these are written so that you may believe. If you're here and you're doubting, so were the disciples. I call on you to look to Jesus. See that he has indeed risen. The Bible teaches that you are dead in your sins. But God loved the world in such a way that he sent his own son to die in place of sinners like you and me. And on the third day, God raised Jesus from the grave as evidence that what Jesus did at the cross was an acceptable payment for sin. Not his, he never sinned. But for sin of people like you and me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. These are written so you might believe. But believers, these are not just the words that get us in the door. These are not just truths that get us saved and then we leave them behind. These are life-giving truths that uphold us as we make our way forward in life. We see all of these words that by believing you may have life in his name. That we might have life. How did those 11 disciples change? Because resurrection changes everything. When you place your faith in the risen Lord Jesus, you are promised that one day you too will be risen to life. The disciples were willing to suffer a lifetime of persecution and even martyrdom because they knew that it was only a light and momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that awaits because resurrection changes everything. How did the disciples go from cowering and mourning and distraught to people who had boundless joy and hope and peace? Because they knew very simply, foundationally, that Jesus is alive. Those wonderful gifts flow, flow from knowing that our sins, they're washed away. Faith gives us joy and hope and peace because Jesus is still ruling. He is still reigning over every moment of your life. He is alive. Now, there is an old song that we sing sometimes. It reminds us of the foundational but rich, simple truth because he lives, we can keep going. If you know the words, please join me. I'm just going to try to sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know Amen. Just because he lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that he is our Lord and our Savior and our God. And that life is worth living because he lives. We pray, Lord, for anyone in the room who is downcast and discouraged, that they would see that Jesus is alive. We would pray that anyone in this room who is not yet saved would see that Jesus is alive. 
I pray, Lord, that anyone in this room who was caught in sin would see that Jesus is alive because resurrection changes everything. Amen.